Hi, my name is Robert Newberry, and I'm on staff here with Renovate, which is a ministry for anyone in Fort Worth ages 18 to 35. This week, we're back in our series in the Minor Prophets called To Wander and Return, and Ben is talking on the book of Joel. We hope you enjoy. Amen. Praise God. Guess who lost their voice today? I did. Hey, guys. So glad to be here. Um, Hey, um, I am glad to be here. I love this. Uh, Guess who this is going to be miserable for? You guys who have to listen to me for the next 35 minutes. Um, Um. Man, God is good. I love this. Uh, we are in the, se- the series called To Wander and Return, and it is a series on the minor prophets. These 12 books in the Old Testament, the very last books in the Old Testament that are uh, a lot of times forgotten and obscure, and we don't read them, or at least I don't read them a whole lot, and so we thought, man, let's spend some time. So we're going to kind of come in and out of that uh, series throughout the course of this semester. Last week, we covered Hosea in one night. And now we are going to cover the next book, which is Joel. So we're just going to go through them in order. I'd love to really encourage you guys to, man, read them and spend some time throughout the week. If, if you are not, uh, next week will be Amos. And so, um, yeah, spend some time in Joel. And I thought, I had this thought today. It's a long day. You guys have had a long day. You've worked hard. You know, some of you have gone to class and studied. And some of you have, you know, earned money and supported our government and done things, I don't know, uh, important things. Uh, so I thought some of you are teachers, you know, raising young ch- Okay, yes, okay, lots of teachers. Some of you are nurses, saving lives left and right. Okay, great. Some of you are bankers. Okay, we got one. Got one. Got you. Some of you are bakers. Ba- nope, nope, nope. Baker, like, a, like a baker. Do bakers still exist? Is that a thing? Okay, I think Amazon does all the baking now. Okay, so I thought, I thought of this. I thought, um, <clears throat> I thought, man, it's a long day, and I feel like, man, you know what I enjoy doing at the end of a long day is watching a video of locusts. So our boy Jeffrey's going to queue up a video of locusts. Am I right? Am I right? So, uh, yeah, we're going to watch a little bit of video of locusts. Let's give us some context of the sermon. So, man, just allow yourself to relax. This is a geographical video about locusts. It's going to be a British guy talking here in a second. Nothing relaxes me like watching locusts. There they are, crawling. For those of you podcasting, that's what you get for podcasting. Uh, we're watching locusts on the screen right now. There's some guy who got paid a lot of money to do the voiceover. There they are, locusts. Millions. Ten kilometers, whatever that means. For all you British people, you get it. There they are. They they can't fly yet. But don't worry, they'll get wings in a little bit, guys. Hold on. There's another about 30 seconds of this. Devastate fresh growth. There they are. Look at them. Look at them all up on that bush. Look at all of them crowd around those one bushes. 
Okay, that's good, Jeffrey. Thank you, sir. You are welcome. Yes, uh, locust videos, I feel like, oftentimes unwind us. That's, um, that's what Joel, that's what Joel is about. That's why, that's why I wanted to show you a, a video that we probably will get sued for showing actually here, but that's why I wanted to show you that is, um, is because the swarms of locusts that are talked about, I, I want you to picture that. Um, it's important for us to understand that. The audience that Joel is writing to here, this prophet, is he's writing to Israel, and he's writing to Israel in the context of a time of, guess what? They're disobedient. Um, so often in the Old Testament, time and time again, we see God's people just continue to wander and be disobedient. And so what happens in Joel is a massive swarm of locusts come and wipe out Israel. And, and, and you just see these, this picture of locusts, and it just destroys, and it levels things. And there's millions of locusts, and they just sweep through in a matter of days, wiping out uh, crops left and right. And so um, that's what's happening in this book. You've got a lot of God's people who have wandered, they're disobedient, and God sends locusts to wipe out the land of Israel uh, and, and just desolate it to where they are left with no, where they're left with nothing. And that's where we pick up in this book. And that's, that's what the prophet is speaking into. And that's the words that he's been given. And so what I want to do is I want to give you a broad overview of Joel. Um, and so I'm going to take a few minutes and I'm just going to break down how this book works. Uh, there's kind of four parts to it. So if you're a note taker, in fact, I've got to have a lot of scripture up on the screen tonight, but there's going to be other times where I don't have a slide for it. And so I would really encourage you to grab your Bible or grab one of the Bibles under the seat in front of you. If you don't have one and flip to Joel and just be tracking, I want you to... I want you to know it. This book's only three chapters long, and I, I want you to be able to wrap your hands around it and be able to kind of see how, how kind of God lays out what he's trying to communicate in this book. So I'm going to give you a broad overview, and then we're going to bring it in and say, okay, what, what are the themes in that, and what does that mean for us, okay? So that's where we're going tonight. So broad overview. Part one in Joel is in chapter one. It's verses, uh, really starts in chapter, it starts in verse two, chapter one, and goes through, chap, uh, through verse 12, excuse me. So those first kind of 10 to 12 verses is part one. And part one is God's judgment and consequence. Let me read a few verses. I'm gonna start with verse two, which won't be up on the screen, but then Jeffrey will put up verses three and four. Here's what Joel says. He says, hear this, you elders, give ear all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days? Or in the days of your father, and this is a cool verse for us sitting here in 2019, Joel says, tell your children of it and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation and on. So here we, here we are hearing what God has prophesied through Joel to pass down to us, to say this is relevant for us in 2019. This is not just about ancient Israel. This is about us generation to generation. And then in verse four, four we start to see here's some serious consequences God's judgment showing up. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. So everything got eaten, that sucks. Verse five, awake you drunkards and weep and wail, all you drinkers of wine because of the sweet wine. For it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against you. <coughs> Guess who lost their voice? Uh, excuse me. You can read. Go ahead and read it. <laughs> Again, if you're podcasting, sucks to suck, man. Sorry. <laughs> you guys read it. I'm going to drink some water. Verses 6 and 7. 
struggle bus. You got it, right? Okay. Here's the idea, right? Part one. Part one, right off the bat, there are there is consequences and God's judgment is seen. And then, still kind of in that same part, a couple verses later, verses 13 and 14, we see a call to repent. Okay, so that's part one, right? And we're gonna see a pattern here. So part one is consequences. You're the man. I'll take one of those. You're a good man. Robert Newberry, everybody. <clears throat> um, right, we see consequences and judgment and then we see this call to repent. Let me, let me read verses 13 and 14 for you in... Uh, in chapter one, 13 and 14 says this. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests, wail. O ministers of the altar, go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. So there's the pattern. Part one, right, those first 13 verses, 14 verses of chapter one is consequences, God's judgment, a very clear call to repent. Look at part two. Part two is God's future judgment and consequences and then a call to repent. Let me read chapter two, verses two and three to you. It'll be real quick. Chapter two, verses two and three. Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble For the day of the Lord is coming, it is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains, a great and powerful people there. Like has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. Depressing stuff. I would love to see Tim Tebow put this reference on his eye black next time he plays. It's just depressing stuff, right? It is just consequences and judgment of God, and then a very clear Call to repentance. In verses 12 through 17, you get this real clear call to repentance. I want to show it to you. So skim there or or look up at the screen. Yet even now, verse 12 says, declares the Lord. Right after he's talking about judgment and judgment and judgment. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. This call to repentance is there, guys. With fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. And rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. This beautiful call to repentance in the midst of locusts and destruction and destruction and judgment and consequence. Okay? So part one, you see the pattern. Consequence, judgment, a call to repentance. Part two, consequence, judgment, a call to repentance. And then part three is where things get awesome. Part three is God's restoration. So this, this section of the book, it's really uh, the rest of chapter two. So if you had your Bible and you put a little dash starting at verse 18 in chapter two, really the rest of chapter two is this incredible thing from 18 to 32, th- those verses of God's restoration is so beautiful. It's so beautiful. It's so powerful there. And it's, and it's all throughout that, uh, that passage. Do we have a slide for that one? Yes, okay. So let me read uh, 16 through 19 to you. Then the Lord became jealous for his land. Oh, this is good, guys. Look at this turn right here. Right at 18. Then the Lord became jealous for his land, and he had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied. And I will no more make you a reproach among the nations." 
I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him out, him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea and his rear guard into the western sea. So, oh, it's still going, it's still going. Hang on, let me give you more. It's, it's all so good. He says, fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit, the fig tree, the vine, they give their full yield. Part three is, I mean, obviously that's the best part of the movie, right? This is just this restoration that we see from God in the book of Joel, that consequence and judgment, call to repentance, consequence to call to repentance, and then this restoration happens. And then the fourth uh, part of the book is all of chapter three. And chapter three is really God's future. Um, it's his future plan for his people. It's his future uh, plan for judgment and restoration. There's this whole theme that we won't have time to get into um, tonight, but it's going to come up a lot in the Minor Prophets, so we're going to cover it in one of the later books, but this idea of the day of the Lord and this coming judgment that God has uh, that we should all be expectant. Um, I, I just want to read two verses real quick in this fourth section, verses 17 and 18. I think it kind of articulates well what Joel is communicating as far as God's future plan. He says in verse 17 and 18, he says, so you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain, and Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never pass again pass through it. And in that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water. And a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord, and water the valley of Shittim. That's, that's awesome. It's beautiful. So really, that's how the book lays out. So now you know the book of Joel. Those three chapters, there's this repetitive theme and it's in Hebrew poetry done in this re really patterned way where we see serious consequences in judgment, call to repentance, serious consequences in judgment, call to repentance, restoration, and then look what he's gonna do in the future. Look what our God is going to do in the future. Three timeless truths we get from Joel. Three things that are just timeless that are in, in every page of this text and they're this. One, God's judgment is real. God's judgment is real. Uh, we live in a culture, in a world that would uh, love to neuter God of, of judgment, uh, of any kind of wrath or consequence of sin. Uh, I think we often live in a, a culture that says, no, 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 we don't want to believe that God. We're going to neuter anything that makes God seem like he might be mean, we're gonna neuter. And part of that, I think, comes from a very politically correct culture that we're entering into more and more and more. But I, I feel like it's too easy just to pick on that. I think a lot of it comes from very well-meaning followers of Christ, very well-meaning followers of Christ who know how this thing ends, who knows all about chapter three and knows all about restoration and knows all about grace. And so because of that, we become quick to just talk about grace and we never, and we want to completely neuter this idea of a God who is very serious about consequences towards sin and very much calling us towards repentance and leaving and stopping and returning from our wanderings. Um, and yet we see in Joel, uh, God's judgment is real. We also see that our repentance is required. What do I mean by that? Because that sounds like a dangerous statement to me. <clears throat> Renovate. We are saved by grace through faith so that nobody in this room gets to boast. We are saved. 
Our salvation is by grace, by the grace of God, a free gift, right? We are saved by grace through faith so that no one can boast. But what, is our, what does that faith look like, right? It is a free gift from God by grace through faith. What does that faith look like? Well, James kind of unpacks that a little bit for us in the New Testament. He says, well, faith without works, right? Faith without any action is dead, right? That's just dead faith. And so what I mean when I say that is I mean that there should be an evidence of our faith. Faith is the evidence of this relationship we have, and there should be some sort of evidence and action attached to this faith that we have in Jesus Christ. And part of that faith should look like repentance. It should look like repentance. If I, if I this is the easiest layup illustration for this, which is why you guys hear me say it a lot, um, but if I tell my wife I love her, how do you know I love my wife? If I just say it, does that mean I actually love her? No, there should be some level of action connected to it. I love my wife. Well, there should be some level where you could look at my life and say, well, am I actually loving her? Right? Or am I just saying I love her? Now, does that mean if I do a really bad job of loving my wife and I'm a really crummy husband for a long period of time, that means our marriage is null and void? No, thank God, it doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that. But there should be attack, uh, there's some sort of action connected to love. There should be some sort of action connected to this faith. If I say God is my king, if I say God is my savior, he is my hope, I'm putting my faith and my hope in the savior of Jesus Christ, well, then that faith to do that, there should be some repentance in my life because it means that I am no longer putting my hope and my faith in other things to provide me comfort or to find my security or to whatever, whatever those things are. Our repentance is required. It should be there. It's not near as fun and popular to preach, but it should be there. It is, we're gonna hear this a lot in the Minor Prophets. We're gonna see it in the New Testament. You're gonna see it in, you're gonna see it in every book of the Bible. God takes us seriously. Third thing is his restoration is thorough. And, uh, and, and I think you know what I mean by that. Um, I, I think you could probably apply it to your own life in ways, but you know, we see it here in this text. I mean, he's going to, he's going to completely restore things. His restoration is thorough. He, he will completely restore what was broken and what was lost. And uh, for the things that have been consequences of our sin, our God's restoration is thorough. And we'll talk more about that here for a minute. So what does this mean for us? Right? Here's what I want to spend the rest of our time talking about. Now, what does this mean for us? We see the book of Joel. We see these three things just pop off of the entire page of, of all of Joel. God's judgment is real. Repentance is required. And, and this idea that his restoration is thorough. And praise God for that. So what does that mean for us? It means that judgment is real. It means restoration is available. But there is no true restoration without true repentance. So that means... There's no true restoration without true repentance. And so what do I mean there? Um, again, hear me. The grace of God is the beginning, middle, and end of my salvation. My relationship with God is orchestrated and, and connected and will be finished because of the grace of God, not of my own works. But there will be evidence of my faith and repentance is that. Repentance is that evidence and that product of that. So what is true repentance? This is what we're going to talk about from here today. What is true repentance, right? If we see the judgment's real, if we see the restoration can be fully thorough, no matter how far we've wandered, no matter how far uh, the locusts have just eaten our lunch and destroyed our lives, the consequences of sin, 
then repentance is required. And so what is true repentance look like? I think Joel lays it out all over the place. And so here we go. First, it means acknowledging the acknowledgement of your sin. True repentance looks like an acknowledgement of our sin. Look at this. This is so good. 115. Let me read this over you. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. Then again, in the beginning of chapter 2, blow a trumpet to Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain, let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. All throughout the book of Joel, there, the entire book of Joel is an acknowledgement of sin. There is an acknowledgement of, hey, sound the alarm, tremble, we messed up, we blew it. All throughout here, we see Joel raise up this acknowledgement that, hey, 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 these locusts are wiping out what these locusts didn't get, these locusts got, and then those guys got what these guys left over. This consequence of judgment, repent. Repent, there is an acknowledgement of sin. For us in our life, there should be an acknowledgement of sin. How do, I, how do I know, right? How do I know if I need to repent? How do I know what I need to repent from? Um, here's, here's the way I would try to shepherd you through that and three minutes. Here's what I'd say. As you're wrestling through, okay, what does acknowledgement look, look like? Um, we, our, our standard is God's, is God's perfection, right? So, okay, good. So God's law and what God commands us to and God's way of doing life is probably the best way to say that, right? God has said, hey, Ben, here's the way that I want you to live your life. Here's the way I want you to love others. Here's the way I want you to serve. Here's the way I want you to, here's what obedience looks like, Ben. And God's way, he's made that clear through his scripture. He's given a scripture to help us frame that up. And in different seasons of my life, I've had different maturities of understanding what it looks like to follow hard after God and be obedient, all those things, but God's way. And then this really cool, John 14 talks about him as the helper. We get the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, which is so often ignored by us, so often ignored by me. The Holy Spirit comes along and he brings about conviction. He brings about conviction in our life. There's this term called the quickening of the Holy Spirit, right? There's conviction of the Holy Spirit that happens in our life to where God has given us a helper for those who are in Christ. And so for those who have put their faith in Christ and have been sealed by his promise and have received the Holy Spirit, then we have this Holy Spirit that we've got to stay in tune with to take God's word, to take God's law, to take what God's way would be, to be sensitive to that, to listen to that, and to listen to that Holy Spirit as he brings conviction. It's crazy important. <clears throat> Here's a caveat. I have got uh, friends, and there's a, there's a young woman that I'm friends with right now, and she comes to mind when I say this because she is quick to take everything on right? If things hit the fan, it's like, oh my goodness, that was my fault. That was probably my sin that made that happen, right? Right? Like if like a car wreck happens three blocks over, she's like, oh my goodness, that was locusts affecting for my sin, right? Like, and, and very sweet. And, and there are people that are so sensitive to that. And I don't want to, I don't want to numb that sensitivity, but I also want to say, okay, at there are times where I think we take on shame and we take on guilt that isn't from the Lord. And, and there are some of us who might hear that and think, yes. And you hear me talking about the sensitivity of the Holy Spirit convicting of us of your sin. And all of a sudden you're like, oh my goodness, I'm so bad, right? And it's, I am so such a sinner and I wail and I'm awful. And, I, and you beat yourself up, which is also not what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit does not beat you up. The 
Holy Spirit convicts. The Holy Spirit points to Jesus. And so I want to have that as a caveat because I think that for a lot of us, we need to hear, man, I need to tune into the stinking Holy Spirit and listen and follow that conviction. And you, even when I say that, know you've got conviction. The Holy Spirit has laid before you already. And he's gently saying, yeah, yeah, it's, it's this. We've been talking about this. I love you. I'm walking you through this. Here it is. You know what that is. And then other people who just take on all kinds of things. It's a rainy day. And it's like, this is God's punishment for something I did. I shouldn't have watched The Bachelor. And it's like this whole thing. <laughs> Which might be sin. I'll, that'll be next week. <laughs> Tune in next week when Ben discusses if The Bachelor is sin. It is. Um, <clears throat> So, um, right, it's not always that, right? We've, we've got we've to be able to discern what the Holy Spirit is and what is misplaced guilt and shame. And that's a part of maturity and that's a part of discernment. And I'm not going to preach an entire sermon on that, but that's, that's key. So one of the other ways is um, you might be the opposite. And you might have numbed yourself to the Holy Spirit, right? You might have spent just countless times suppressing that and suppressing that, or really just, um, I, I love you, but even in your maybe lack of maturity in your walk, just never really, never really practice the discipline of sitting and being before the Lord and tuning in to, to what the Holy Spirit would have for you and, and some of those ways that maybe the Holy Spirit's conviction has just been numbed because you've just continued to push that down. And so to that person who says, well, I don't even, I don't even know what that looks like because I I don't ever do that, and I've numbed it, and I've numbed it, and I've, I've deadened that so much in my life. And yes, you will never be ripped from God's hand, but there's a numbing, and that's keeping you in sin that maybe you're not even aware of in ways. Um, my caution to you and even my encouragement to you from this text is, well, what do you do? You look at the circumstances of your life. I mean, that's what Israel did. Israel had numbed themselves. They weren't walking with the Holy Spirit. They were, I mean, they were so far gone. And God wiped him out with locusts, sent locusts and just wiped him out. And then they look around and they look at their circumstances because God's loving graciousness was manifested in widespread destruction. That was God's discipline. God's discipline to say, I'm going to wipe them out with these locusts because they're not listening to me and this will get their attention and so I would encourage you, maybe if you're in a place where you feel like you have numbed anything Jesus in your life and you say, well, how do I know what I need to? Look at your life and say, man, have just locusts been eating your lunch? <clears throat> I am, I love like being a pastor. Like I always want to talk about my sin in the past tense, you know, like, oh, I used to struggle with this, right? Like I am coming out of, maybe just coming out of a season where I just feel like, man, locusts have been eating my lunch. And I just, I, I get this, this picture of me just sitting in the middle of a field because of some just dark apathy in my life. And this is, this is my own personal sense and it won't necessarily match yours, but just apathy where, man, I am really good at faking it and going through the motions and doing the right thing. And, and a lot of the things in my role at a church help kind of keep me in front of him in some ways. But then all of a sudden where it's like, oh, I got three weeks off where I'm not preaching. Sweet, man. And I just kind of had this apathy in my spiritual walk and in my sensitivity to the Lord. And I just, and I just ignore him. And I've just found myself, honestly, in a season where I just feel like I'm coming out of just, 
dark apathy to God. And I just feel locusts have eaten my lunch. And I feel like some of that joy and some of that and some of that peace that he gives is just wiped out. And yet as I'm coming out of that, as I'm coming out of that, I take all this hope because I know God's promises and I know what awaits those who repent, right? But I've got to acknowledge it, but I know what I get. Um, I know what I get at the end of this thing. Uh, and that is more of Jesus. And so I feel like I've got these little sprouts of like, okay, God is good and he's growing things back for me. Uh, maybe that's you. Maybe it's not you. But man, if you've deadened and numbed the Holy Spirit, then man, I'd encourage you, just look at the circumstances. And if you're in a place where you're like, man, everything is just lame. Well, then maybe there's things that you need to repent from and find somebody else to say, man, what do you see things in my life? Spend some time sitting before the Holy Spirit saying, Holy Spirit, you have not left me. I've tuned you out, but speak loudly to me. Second thing with true repentance, and this leads right into that, it should lead to humility, right? And those go one and one, one, one together. Like if I, there is true acknowledgement, then there's going to be this true humility. There's gonna be a true humility before the Lord. We see it in Joel, right? Verse 13, which we read earlier. Verse 13 in chapter one. He says, put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because grain offerings and drink offerings are withheld, right? We see, uh, we see in, in chapter two, verses 12 and 13, which we read earlier. Yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart with fasting, right? There's humility in these things, weeping and fasting and putting on sackcloth, mourning, rend your hearts and not your garments, tear your hearts, there is a humility all throughout the Old Testament, New Testament tied to true repentance is this idea of there should be a humility. There should, there should be a brokenness to us for true, true repentance. It really taking place to say, man, I see my sin. I see the ways I've wandered from the Lord and, and look at the humility he's bringing. Now, what's the difference between this kind of humility Right, this type of humility, this brokenness, we see again and again. We see Psalm 51, David says it, right? He says, restore to me the joy of my salvation, right? There's a brokenness of David after he sins with Bathsheba. We, time and time again, we see this. What's the difference between that kind of humility of true repentance and emotion, feeling bad about your sin, right? Just emotionally feeling bad. Feeling like, man, oh man, I'm, I really am bad. And yeah, I just feel the, the weight of the emotion of it. What's the difference between real deep, God-given humility, brokenness over my sin, and emotion or feeling sorry? I would say about four minutes after the song ends. Here's what I mean by that. <clears throat> when I'm listening to a worship song and it's like, oh man, Gosh, this is, oh man, I feel this conviction. I feel this. About four minutes after that worship song's over and the acoustic guitars are put up and the bass drum is no longer moving and all of that, is that emotion gone, right? And I think sometimes there can be a shallowness to our emotion. And, and I think there can be, and I think music is God's tool to break down some barriers and to stir my affections. But I think real humility and brokenness will last much longer than the worship music set or the sermon that you listened to or the podcast you listened to that was so convicting. And it was like, oh man, dude, you should have heard this Francis Chan sermon. He made me feel like crap. It was awesome, right? 
He made, man, Chandler made me feel like a piece of dirt. It was awesome. And it lasted four minutes. And then I listened to Kanye, right? Like, <laughs> that's, that's, I would say, the difference, man. Are we, are we really seeking after real humility and identifying, Lord, I want, I want to see, I want to acknowledge and see my sin for what it is. And I want to, I want to experience real, real humility with that. I don't want you to feel bad. I don't want you to feel bad. This is not about feeling bad and let's see how bad we can all feel about it. It's about what's the word of God say and let's have real repentance. Um, man, we'll be humbled by Jesus. And Jesus did this. Jesus called people out, right? Jesus was incredible and loving, but Jesus, Jesus looked at Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. Called Peter Satan, right? Which I think we could even play like jokingly, like I would maybe call Robert Satan as a joke, right? It'd be a stupid joke, but I might do that, right? Culturally, in that context, no way. Like that was a highly offensive, Jesus was highly offensively, saw Peter as a prideful guy in the New Testament. He sees this pride and this sin flare up and he says, you are acting like Satan, get behind me, right? We see Jesus tell a rich guy, functionally, you're going to hell if you don't stop worshiping your money. And he hung his head and walked away. And so often we want to neuter Jesus and say, he wouldn't be mean to people, right? Jesus called people out, but then also to the humble, what did he do? And this woman who's in adultery, her own sin of adultery gets dragged in front of Jesus naked. And what's he do to her? She is humble. She is broken. She's sitting in the dirt, crying, caught in her sin, broken over it. And Jesus picks her up and wipes the dirt off her and says, I don't condemn you. You see that? You see how Jesus responds to humility? You see how Jesus responds to brokenness? You see how he, God responds to brokenness here in the book of Joel when he relents? Look at, look at what happens in verses 23, 20, in chapter 2, 23 through 25. This is good. This is so good. And for anyone who's hanging their head low and recognizing sin and recognizing their need, look what God does here. He says in verse 23, be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before. The threshing floors shall be full of grain, the vats shall overflow with wine and oil. Listen to this. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. Man, our God brings restoration. He brings restoration to those who acknowledge their sin and are humble before him. We see that whole picture play out with an entire nation in the book of Joel. He humbles them, they acknowledge it, call to repentance. I will restore to you. Man, no matter how far you have let locusts just destroy your life, no matter how far you have let sin just wipe you out, what does he say? He says, I will restore to you. All the years that you lost, I will restore to you. That's the hope we have. That's the kindness that leads me to repentance. To say, yes, yes, yes. I'm gonna get up out of this desolate field and I'm gonna run towards him. And so my third, my third way of what true repentance looks like is our return to obedience, right? Our return to obedience. Those are the, the three things that we, there should be a return to him. 
There should be a, what is it, Lord? What is it that I've disobeyed in? Where have I wandered? Where have I gotten off into the weeds? What have you called me to do that I've been stiff-arming because I'm scared or out of insecurity or out of fear? Lord, I want you. I want you. I return to you. And Joel, the way Joel talks about it is this idea of sacrifice, this obedience being sacrificed. And I think that's so true for us that we would say, Lord, what needs to be done? What do I need to let go of? Maybe it's my pride. There's pride I need to let go of and just take to the altar and sacrifice. Maybe there's things I'm holding on to. What's that look like for you, right? Maybe it's a, maybe it's a mission trip that you're like, man, I don't wanna go on that mission trip because it's gonna be a sacrifice or because it's gonna be you know, time or money or because whatever, or because it's scary, right? Because out of my comfort zone. And you say, okay, man, God's calling you to be obedient with that. Maybe there's apathy, right? There's just been apathy in your walk and you say, Lord, I'm gonna return to obedience. And so I'm going to, I'm going to every day chase after you. I'm gonna do it one day at a time. I'm gonna chase after you and, and put myself in a place where I, I can help start battling that apathy and put myself around other people. And I'm gonna sacrifice what it needs to sacrifice to make that happen because our lives are busy and full and something's gotta go. If I'm not spending time with Jesus and I'm apathetic, well, my life is full, so I gotta cut out something. I gotta sacrifice something. Maybe it's you say, man, I don't wanna be in community. I don't wanna be known. I'd rather just stay on the fringes, show up, listen to a podcast, listen to a sermon, sing some songs. I don't want to be known. I don't want to be in a home group. And the Lord's saying, yeah, because that's scary and it can be awkward and it can be tough, especially driving up to some stranger's house for the first time and them knowing you and, you and all of that. And yet maybe God's saying, I have something more for you. Be obedient and follow me. Quit wandering over there and follow me. Maybe that's what the sacrifice looks like. Maybe it looks like walking out of an unhealthy relationship, right? Maybe it... Maybe it looks like your smartphone being a portal to disobedience in our life, right? Whether that's games that suck up all my life because I'm playing games or what I'm looking at on my phone that we know is disobedient, we know is numbing the Holy Spirit, that we know is not what he has for us. And so maybe it's that, and it looks like getting some accountability or getting some filters or, or getting other people to check in on that. Or if that doesn't work, it looks like smashing your smartphone into a thousand pieces and getting a flip phone. Because he's better than that, because he's worth it. And so as we talk about real repentance, man, there should be this beautiful return to obedience. That's what gets to follow our humility. We get up out of the field that, that we put ourselves in, wiped out by these locusts, wiped out by our sin, wiped out by our apathy, wiped out by whatever it is. And we get to return to obedience and say, God, why did I leave? Following you is better. Following you is better. Here's my final thought. We didn't really have a lot of time to get into chapter three, but I want to read verses nine and 10 to you. Because <clears throat> it talks about the future here in chapter three and it talks about, man, what, what do we have to look forward to? And in verses nine and 10, it says, proclaim this among the nations, consecrate for war, stir up the mighty men, let all the men of war draw near and let them come up. So he's talking about, man, here you've been restored. You've been restored. Remember at the end of chapter three, I mean, at the end of chapter two, this beautiful restoration that takes place, right? Verses 18 through the end of the verse, it's awesome. And then he's like, man, go to battle. Go to battle, go to war. Look at verse 10. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let, let the weak say I'm a warrior. So here's what I want you to end on. I want you to chase after true repentance in your life. Restoration is there. We know victory is his. Chase after true repentance. Acknowledge it. 
Tune into the Holy Spirit. Find other people in your life who are tuned into the Holy Spirit. Humble yourself and return to obedience and then fight for it daily. Fight for it. Do whatever it takes. Turn your plowshare into a sword. Right? Do whatever it takes. Fight for this daily. Go to war in this battle of repentance. Victory from our gracious God is for the taking. He's already offered it. His grace is the beginning, middle, and end of our salvation. So let's walk in the victory that he is already freely offering us. You have been restored. So let's suit up and go to war. Hey, I'm praying for you guys. I am. Our staff is praying for you guys. Then that we would be able to walk this out in our life. And if you are in this room and you are thinking, man, I've never really put my faith in Christ and you are not in Christ and you do not have the Holy Spirit in you, Maybe you're religious, but you've never actually put your faith in Jesus Christ once and for all to save you. And maybe you're on the fence. Then I want you to hear all of this, a bunch of people saying how much we want to return and how much we want to humble ourselves and how much we want to follow into obedience. Here's why we're saying it. Because he is worth it. We believe he is worth it. And we're a bunch of broken people who have tried a lot of other things, He is worth it. And my hope is that the Holy Spirit tonight would grab your hearts and say, I am worth it. I am better than all those other things that you have chased. Come home to me tonight and we would love to walk you through what that looks like once and for all, to never be let go of his grip and for you to experience the grace of God that will never let you go and that will restore all that the years have taken from you. Let me pray over you. Father, we love you. And we love you because you first loved us and you showed us how it is. You showed us how that works. Thank you, God. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for the book of Joel, these three chapters in the middle of the Old Testament that show how you work, that echo throughout the rest of Scripture, this beautiful gospel that we have. That what we put our faith in is the perfect savior of Jesus Christ who came and died for us. Lived the perfect life, died the death that we deserve so that all the wrath and judgment of God falls on Jesus' innocent shoulders. And for that, we are so grateful, Lord. And so we put our faith in you because we've received your grace. And Lord, would our faith have roots And would our faith have feet that walk? And would our faith show up in ways that are repentance? That we would turn from what is not you and turn to you. Lord, you know what that is and you know what that looks like. So would you do that work in our hearts tonight? In the name of Jesus, amen. Man, praise God. What a tough but good message to hear. So many times in our lives we hear judgment. We hear that word and it's such a negative experience for us because of things that have happened in our past. And when it comes to the book of Joel, we have that tendency to bring that same idea of judgment, whether it's a bad teacher, whether it's a coach who is really harsh with us, to the way God's talking to his people. And that's just not the case. We believe that God is talking to his people out of an unloving, harsh heart, but it's out of his love that he goes to his people and says, hey, these things are robbing you of joy and I want better for you. So I'm going to you and I'm telling you these things so that you can repent and turn and live a true God-honoring life. 
And that's the judgment that he's talking about here. It's out of a good love that he has for us. And it's not that unloving spirit that we have such a tendency to think about whenever we hear that word judgment. But I pray, I hope, that as we go through the series, you see that God is doing it out of his love for his people. And he's doing it for us now. So I pray that you would join us as we all look intently into our own lives and take the time to see where God is calling us to repent where God is saying that there are parts of our lives that are robbing us of joy. And may we have the courage to walk into those towards repentance because we know that God is offering our true joy. And I pray that when we hear that judgment, when we hear that call, that we don't respond out of fear or out of worry that God is disapproving of us because we know that our God offers grace. We know that he freely extends grace to those of us who are in Christ Jesus. So may we have the courage to look into our lives, see the areas that aren't in line with what he wants for us, and then have the community around us to be able to walk out of those things and into a life that is more God-glorifying and joyful and honoring to him. And if you need help with that, I encourage you to reach out to us at renovateftw.org or on social media at RenovateFTW, and we would love to walk through that with you. So we hope you have a great week. We hope this has been a blessing to you, and we'll see you again next week.